All right, Mark chapter 5 is where we are again. Like I mentioned, we, last week we looked at the, the demon-possessed man in the Gerasenes. This morning we pick up the story right after that encounter. So we're going to start in, in Mark chapter 5, verse 21, and I'm going to read um, all the way to, looks like, 43. Yeah, let's do that. All right, 21 through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great, ca- great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged behind him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately... The flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him, And told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him. And he went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, rise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. Thanks be to God for his word. A couple of notes we're going to make about this passage, a few things that we should observe, and, and hopefully you'll see some very clear points of application, some things that God is teaching us as we study his word this morning. The first thing that we notice is a desperate man in these first opening verses, an absolutely desperate man. Jesus crossed again. What, what did he cross? He, he crossed the Sea of Galilee, the one that he had just crossed over to meet the demon-possessed man in the Gerasenes. Now he, he crossed back. Remember, they didn't want him there. They were afraid. They they didn't know how to deal with the power that he held, that he could cast demons out of this oppressed and possessed man. They were frightened by him. They asked him, please don't stay here. You've got to get out of here. We we can't deal with this. And they sent him back. So he gets in the boat and he crosses over. And immediately when he gets there, a great crowd gathered again. 
The crowd is there pressing in upon him. Remember that in the book of Mark especially, the crowd is not always seen as a favorable group, but they are actually a hindrance most often to the work that Jesus is doing. They have come for the show. They're excited to see what kind of magic he can cook up next, but they are rarely seen as the people who are walking in faith, believing him. They stand in the way of those who want to get to him. The Bible says that as he's there and the crowd is gathered around him, there came one of the rulers of the synagogue, a man named Jairus. This, this man is an influential person. The ruler of the synagogue is the one who would preside over its affairs, set up the building, would, would make sure that the, uh, the, the dwelling itself was in order. He was somewhat influential and well-known in his community. A good Jew. And he comes to Jesus, he approaches him, and he falls down at his feet. He's desperate. This is a sign of humility. This is a posture of of desperation. And we find very quickly why he's here. He doesn't say, Jesus, you are the Son of God. It had been revealed to me. He says, my little daughter is at the point of death. My little girl is sick. She's ill. I can't help her anymore. Please, please. You have to come. You have to put your hands on her that she might be well. She's 12 years old. We find that out in verse 42. So we, here's, here's the story, right? Jesus comes. He, fresh off the, the exorcism in the garrisons, he gets off. The crowd gathers around. And this influential, moral person, this well-known, respected person, falls at his feet in front of the crowd. And he cries out to him, asking him to come help him because he has nowhere else to go. Something I want to point out about this Jairus fellow. He is not the demoniac in the Gerasenes. The demoniac in the Gerasenes was unwell. He was isolated. He was neglected. He was out of his right mind. He was controlled by dark forces. He was enslaved in his condition. And he was an outcast. Jairus is about the complete opposite from that. Jairus is a ruler in the synagogue. He is responsible for the community of faith. An influential man, a morally upright man, person of significance in the community. What struck me in my study this week was that all of his influence and all of his morality and all of his significance couldn't help him in his time of need. And he was reduced to the same condition as the guy who was possessed by many demons. They are about as far apart on the spectrum as you can get, and yet they find themselves in the same position on their feet, at the feet of Jesus, bowing before the miraculous power of the Son of God. Not only that, but think about the statement that this is. A synagogue ruler, a devout Jew in front of the crowd imploring Jesus, the miracle-working carpenter, would you come and fix my little girl? He's desperate. His little girl is so sick, doubtless he has tried all that he knows how to do in that day, and he realizes that she is at the point of death, and he has to do something. And the only thing he can think to do, because of the reputation of the miracle-worker, is to go to Jesus and say, would you come help her? And Jesus went with him. No delay. 
Just a straightforward and immediate response to the request. It reminds me of James's uh, words from our Newtown 20 reading in the past week. You have not because you ask not. Sometimes I think we're so afraid just to say to Jesus, here is what I need. As, as best as I can perceive it, will you provide this amount of money? Will you give me this job? Will you heal this person of this? And we get real vague. Oh Lord, have your will in this way and help us to be okay. It's okay to ask specific things of God. And trust him that maybe if your will is wrong, that it'll be conformed to his. But it's all right. You have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you ask amiss because you don't believe it. This man falls before the feet of Jesus and begs him, will you come heal my little girl? And Jesus starts towards his home. Lo and behold, the crowd gathers around him. That's what they do. They want to see the show. Rarely giving him much personal space, which is my own personal version of prison, right? Those of us who are introverts have like a, an imaginary line around us. Like, get away. So we see this desperate man. And then on the way to meet this little girl, we find a desperate woman. And she has her own 12-year-old problem her own 12-year-old need. In verse 25, we're told that she has, she's had a discharge of blood for 12 years. The implication, although not explicit, the implication is that the condition was uterine in nature and that she was experiencing a discharge of blood for over a decade, which would have made her unclean ceremonially, cut off and outcast, set aside, discarded, the Bible says in verse 26 that she suffered much under many physicians, in part because of the rudimentary medical procedures of the day. They simply did not know as much as we know today. Medical treatments weren't the same. I remember Claude Hine telling us he had a buddy that had a collapsed lung, and so every couple months they'd go in and fill up his collapsed lung with some kind of oil. And then they'd wait for it to like, dissipate into his body, and then he'd go back and he'd get lubed up again. I remember, I remember one of our elders worked for a healthcare company. He was like, are you kidding me? Like they did that? Yeah, you know, our first president died because they, they were practicing bloodletting. He probably would have survived his illness, but the doctors thought it would be a really good idea to bleed him out a little bit. Rudimentary medical procedures were not always the most productive and we cringe to think about what this poor woman was subject to over the course of 12 long years. What kind of superstition and sorcery and other mess that she had been involved in to try to find a solution. All the while cut off, all the while an outcast. Here she is, 12 years in the battle. She has suffered much. Shame and disgrace. She has spent everything she has trying to get well, and she is worse today than when she started. She is desperate. She is hopeless. She has nobody to lean on. She has no course of action to take. But she has heard about this miracle-working carpenter. She's heard about Jesus, that he'd been healing people. Remember in the early part of Mark, he's traveling town to town. He's casting out demons. He's raising the dead. He is bringing healing to those who are sick. And word travels fast. And she knows. 
She knows that she's in a mess, and she knows that many other people in a similar mess have found freedom in Jesus. So she was thinking, if I can just get close enough to him, if I can just get close enough to touch his garments, then I can be well. You have to keep in mind her her condition wasn't only physical, but also social, spiritual as well. Because of the unclean nature of her condition, it makes her unclean to other people. So she's isolated and cut off. People separate themselves from her. Here we have two separate women, separated by some distance and some years and circumstances, and yet both of them find themselves united together in need. The young girl without hope, unable to fix her condition, lacking. The woman with the issue of blood, without hope, unable to fix her condition, lacking. Sounds an awful lot like some other people that I know. People who have found themselves unable to fix their own condition, lacking, weary, discouraged, broken, and beaten up by this world. And as Jesus reaches out and touches these two ladies, he would have been made unclean himself. The little girl dies. He can't go touching a dead body. The woman with the issue of blood is unclean. By by virtue of her nearness to Jesus, she makes him unclean. And here we have a beautiful foreshadowing of the gospel, don't we? That in the unclean state, they reach out and touch Jesus and they're made well. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He takes upon himself the stain of their uncleanness and gives them health and wellness. This woman had heard about Jesus. She's convinced that just a touch was all she needs. Alistair Begg pointed out that this is a weird combination of faith and superstition. Some, it, it, is, it is a hodgepodge of belief and magic. Like, if I can just get close enough to touch the garment, then everything will be okay. And yet God honors the mustard seed-sized faith in this woman and gives her what she needs. As she touches him, immediately the Bible says the blood flow stops. Immediately she knows she's been healed. She can sense it. And immediately Jesus perceives that power has gone out from him. I don't understand how this is going down. And I don't understand why the Son of God would not know that she's coming. All I know is what the Bible teaches us in this passage, right? And what he says is, is that in an instant, this woman is healed and Jesus knows that somebody has received a power uh, from him. So he turns around and he says, all right, who touched me? And the disciples said, Jesus, everybody touched you. What do you mean? You're surrounded by a crowd. They all touched you. They're pressing in on all sides. And this stood out to me during my study this week as well. Not everyone who bumped into Jesus that day drew from him healing. Not everyone who was in the vicinity, not even everyone who bumped up and physically found themselves touching the Son of God received healing that day. What was the difference? The difference with this woman, it was was that her touch was an act of faith. While everyone was touching him, only one in the crowd was reaching out for healing, believing that he could do it. 
goodness, isn't that an amazing thought? So many of us today, so many of our loved ones and friends are bouncing around communities of faith, are pretty close to the truth of Jesus, but they have not reached out to him in faith. They get really close to the things of God, and yet they remain unchanged. And what is the difference between somebody whose life is radically transformed by the gospel and somebody who's, it's the act of faith. Here's a prime example of those seeds in the soils that Simon taught us about. The crowd is not fertile soil. This woman is. And she reaches out in faith. And God gives to her the increase. This beleaguered, sick woman is good soil. She comes back to him, falls down in fear, trembling before him. I wonder, wonder what the fear is. Maybe it's because of the power of Jesus. Maybe it's because she's afraid that he will shame her because she wasn't supposed to be out and in the crowd. Maybe she's afraid that he'll tell the whole story to the whole group. And instead, she tells him the whole matter. It was me. I've been sick for 12 years. I've had this issue of blood. I spent all that I have. I'm hopeless and helpless, but I heard that you could fix me. I'm sorry. I, it was me. I did it. I reached out and touched, and he, he looks at her, and he says, with Jairus standing by, remember, he says these words, daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. She's cured not by her touch, but by her trust in the Lord Jesus. It was faith that made the difference. She had tried everything available to her, but she had never trusted Christ. Does that describe you today? Does that describe somebody you know and love? Does that describe who you used to be? Tried everything available to you and ended up empty and worse than when you started until the message of the gospel reached you, until you trusted Jesus. As they're standing there, we face a plot twist. It goes from bad to worst. I imagine at this point, Jairus must have been getting a little bit excited. Here we are, we're headed to, to his house, and all of a sudden we stop. He might have been agitated that we're stopping, but look what happens while he stops. This woman is healed. He tells her her faith has made him well. All of a sudden, the power of Jesus is on display. He's got to be feeling pretty good. The miracle worker's coming with me. I just saw with my own eyes he healed somebody. I know what's coming next. He's going to heal my daughter too. And while he's standing there, messengers arrive from his house to tell him, Jairus, I'm sorry, but there's no hope. Your daughter's died. The sickness overtook her. Many of us have had those days, right? Where the crisis in our life just just overtakes us in an instant. Where, where we're riding the emotions of faith and despair, and it feels like somebody just punches us right in the stomach. It could be a, a health scare. It could be the loss of a job, the death of a loved one. It could be a broken relationship. It could be an addiction revealed in our children. It, we, we've been there. Where all of a sudden it feels like we've just been Sucker punched. And here, Jairus moves from this, this hope to desperation. And they ask him, why are you going to bother the teacher? Just come. 
Don't bring him. It's useless now. She's dead. Why bother him any longer? Hope is gone. Just come home and mourn with the rest of us. And Jesus hears them. He hears what they're saying, and he says to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. Or that word translated is keep on believing. Or his journey would tell us, don't stop believing, right? It is a, it is a continued, you're welcome. It is a continued action. Don't give up on your belief. Your trust, your willingness to believe that Jesus had power caused you to run here from your home to approach him, to risk scorn and shame and ask him to come. Don't you stop now. You keep believing. There's a word in there for us that when the circumstances seem like they're going to overtake God's plan and purpose for our lives, don't you doubt in the darkness what God has revealed to you in the light. Don't you give up on hope, on faith, that Jesus is enough. Don't you doubt God's promises in moments where the, the darkness seems to be unfolding you and, and covering you up. Keep on believing that he has the power to change the situation. He says, look, don't, don't be afraid. There's no reason to just believe. Keep on believing. Let's go. So Jesus grabs the big three, Peter, James, John, himself, and Jairus, and they head back to the house. In the final act, we see death to life. When they arrive, they're greeted by a fairly traditional scene of mourning. People are weeping and wailing loudly. It's customary. In fact, professional mourners would have been hired, which I imagine would be an awful job. But they would hire them to come mourn at the home so that the immediate family members would be given a context to face their grief. In fact, one rabbi said that even the poorest should be able to hire two people playing a flute and one girl wailing. Like there was, a, there was like a, a requirement. Two flutes and a wailing lady were... For even the poorest person dealing with a few, I don't know what that's supposed to help, but it, apparently it's supposed to provide the context for mourning. Which, which struck me, as I was reading, how better that is than our Western culture's uh, plan to suppress grief and hide from it. It sounds a little bit odd, but they at least gave an expression to it. And they mourned and they wailed and they cried loudly. They didn't try to suck it up and be strong like we do only to be sabotaged and ambushed by our emotions later. Imagine we would do better just to let go and lean into those emotions from time to time, to grieve, to mourn, and then to trust Christ to put us back together. Jesus says to them, why are you making such a commotion? What's the big deal here? She's not dead, she's just sleeping. And they laugh at him. Uh, you must be mistaken. The reason I'm here is because she's dead. We are professional mourners. That's what we do. We've seen the body. Trust me, Jesus, this girl is not asleep. She is dead. Now, Jesus is not saying that they're wrong in their assessments. He's just telling, telling us, the readers, and all who are listening to him, that he's about to raise her, like John chapter 11, when he raises Lazarus, from death as if, as if he's just sleeping. So on one hand, the girl, yeah, the girl is dead, but she's soon to experience the death-conquering power of Jesus to be revived again, waking her up from this short nap that she's taking. 
their laughter, by the way, gets them kicked out. Like my children. They couldn't hold it together. They had to leave. You get out of here with all your faithless laughing. So they leave the house, which leaves mom and dad, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, left in the home. And he takes them to where the little girl is. Just, just imagine the drama of this moment. Parents who had just lost their 12-year-old daughter hopelessly, hopelessly desperate. If Jesus can't do something in this moment, nothing can be done for her. If Jesus can't fix this right now, right here, this is like your faith meeting the, the, real, the real stuff of life, right? If Jesus can't affect some kind of change right now, they're going to have to go strike up the mourners again, prepare for a burial, try to figure out how to live life without this precious little girl. The drama of this motion, of the emotion of this event is so significant. They walk into the room and Jesus takes her by the hand. He touches her. And he speaks to her. And he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. The Bible says immediately, that's a favorite word of Mark's, immediately she got up and started walking. Immediately they were overcome with amazement. Well, I would think so. That's the appropriate response. Jesus just raised somebody from the dead. Their sweet daughter who was dead is now alive. I wonder, I wonder if in this moment... Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and his sweet wife asked the same question that the disciples asked in the boat, and the same question that the townspeople in the Gerasenes might have asked. What kind of man is this? That he's able to still the seas and rebuke the wind. That he's able to restore a demon-possessed man to his right mind. That he is able by the power of his word, to bring the dead to life. What kind of man is this? And if we would ask ourselves that question, I think we would be close to mark the gospel writer's point to show us very clearly what kind of man this is. Namely, that he is not just any kind of man, but that he is the son of God, the creator, the redeemer, the sustainer of life who by the power of his word brings life from death. He says to them, don't you tell anybody. Well, the news obviously got out because we know about it. They didn't keep that commandment too well. Some commentators think what he meant is, let's not cause a greater commotion right now. We can't be thronged by the crowd. Let me get away from here before this gets out. And get her something to eat. She's hungry. And with that, the whole, the whole thing closes. The whole episode. All right, so what? What are we supposed to make of that? That's kind of a mess. I don't, I don't know about you. Like, sometimes I read the Bible and I'm like, I, I don't quite know really what to do with that. If, that, if that's where you are today, I'm so glad. Because I have some ideas. And you can take... Take your Bibles and research and read and figure out if I'm right. The first thing I think we can see from this, and you have to back up a little bit from last week's teaching as well, but I wrote this phrase. 
The first application is no respecter of persons. And we're told that God is no respecter of persons. That he doesn't care what, what social background you come from. That in Christ there's no barbarian or Scythian, there's no Greek or Roman, there's no uh, Greek or Jew, or there's no male or female, slave or free, that all are in Christ. There, that we've, we've been told, haven't we, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross of Jesus, right? We, there, God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't treat the rich man differently than the poor man. But what we also need to see today is not only is God no respecter of persons, but sin is no respecter of persons either. And the effects of sin and the effects of the curse, they're no respecter of persons either. Sickness and disease and spiritual darkness and addiction and despair is no respecter of persons. Like Amy was talking about today, if if sickness and illness and disease were a respecter of persons, then places like Clifton Park would not be plagued with suicide and heroin addiction and the opioid epidemic. Because the snooty upper middle class people with all of their prosperity would be able to buy their way out of the problem. But sin is no respecter of persons. And disease and illness is no respecter of persons. And addiction and mental illness is no respecter of persons. Think about this. The demoniac living in the garrison graveyard is an outcast and a nuisance to society. He's a weird, eccentric dude that people stay away from. He is not an insider. He's an outsider. Jairus is an insider. Both of them are in the same position. Both of them are unable to fix their condition. Both of them have to turn to Jesus because they've come to the end of their own resources and said, on my own, I can't do anything about this. The woman with the issue of blood would have been considered in that culture less valuable than her male counterparts, cut off from everything in her community because of her condition, crushed under the weight of shame and despair, and not because of anything she had done. And I hope you can see this morning that while the circumstances and the stories of these lives are very different between these people, the reality is still the same. They are hopeless and helpless and desperately in need. And no amount of prestige or influence or money or even perceived morality, none of that was of any use to these people in the day of their need. How great a reminder to us today. How great a reminder to us today that in the day of judgment... And in the day of need, when the sin of our lives is stacked up against the perfect righteousness of God himself, your checkbook will mean nothing. Your ethnic background means nothing. Your political party means nothing. Your good deeds mean nothing. What is your hope? It's the same hope of the demoniac in the Gerasenes and Jairus' daughter and the woman with the issue of blood. Your only hope is Jesus Christ. It is a good reminder to us today that sin is no respecter of persons. Not one of us is immune to the effects and the burdens of life in a fallen world. But, but God has made a way for us to escape. You see here, the second point we also see is the victory of faith. The synagogue ruler had heard about Jesus' power. He'd heard that he was healing the sick. 
And in the poverty of his helplessness, Christ was his only hope. He had no one else to turn to. The woman with the issue of blood suffered 12 years with the shame of the unclean illness. Living now in poverty because of her condition. She had given everything, tried everything, spent everything. And today she was worse than when she started. And her condition still remained. She has nothing left. But just like Jairus, she had heard too about Jesus' power. To heal those who were hopelessly sick. To cast out demons. That he had authority and power in his teaching. That there was something miraculously special and divine about him. And something deep in her knew that if she could just make it to him, she could find the healing that she heard about. And thirdly today, lest we miss it, the most significant thing Mark is teaching us today is about the matchless power of Jesus Christ. In these last few weeks, we have seen him rebuke the wind and calm the sea, cast demons out of an possessed man, heal a woman with a 12-year illness, and now raise a little girl to life. Mark is giving us an answer to that question. What manner of man is this? This is no mere man. He's the son of God with the power to bring death, to bring life from death. Friends, maybe you're here today and you found yourself in a similar position. Maybe you have at one point in your life, or maybe today, right now today, in the cushy confines of a, of a suburban, middle-class church, you find yourself hopeless and helpless. Maybe today you might say, I am broken, and something is going on, and I have tried everything I know how to do, and yet I am worse for it. I have exhausted all of my resources. I can't kick the habit. I can't break down the walls. I can't restore the relationship. I can't fix me. You are in a good place today. There is healing and hope in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I'm not sure what you, I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what your life looks like. I don't know what your story is. But I can tell you with clarity and conviction that many of us were in the same boat completely unable to close the gap between the wreck of our lives that we made and the perfect, sinless nature of God. And through the cross of Jesus Christ, he covered over all that shame and guilt that we felt. And we've been welcomed into the family of God, not because we got our acts together and we, we kicked the habit and we threw out our liquor. No, it had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with we had faith that Jesus could heal us. My friends, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, he can heal you. Your self-righteousness, your pride, your envy, your discontentment, your addiction, your struggle, he can heal you and bring you into the family of God through faith. Maybe today is your day of salvation. We're like this woman. You reach out your hand and just touch him. We're like the little girl. You're raised to new life through faith. Maybe today is the day you witness the power of Jesus in a new way. Why not today? Why not today? The most important, startling thing that Mark is telling us about is the incredible power of Jesus. And like Jesus told Jairus, let's not be afraid. Let's keep on believing that the same Jesus that set us free can set our neighbors free, can set our children free, can set our parents free. 
can set our coworkers free. We've committed ourselves to pray, pray for and, and engage with the gospel. 20 people this year, the same power of Jesus that set me free can reach them. Let's not, let's not give up faith that this Jesus is still doing miracles, that he's still raising the dead to new life, that he's still healing people by his power through faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you're teaching us through the word. Thank you for this great example today that while you are no respecter of persons, neither are the effects of sin and all of our lives have been touched in some way by darkness and brokenness and despair. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ that we can be made new that you, you provide healing for us. I pray for those who are gathered in this room, God, who have never received that healing, that today would be their day of salvation, where they would turn away from their empty pursuits, realizing nothing else they're trying is working, not being good and moral, not trying to white-knuckle their way and get better. Nothing else is working for them. I pray that today they would fall at the feet of Jesus like Jairus and just ask for healing. God, meet them there in their despair. And I pray for those of us who have found you there, that like the demoniac, we would return home and tell others about the mercy of God in our lives. That we would continue to preach the gospel, believing that we'll see our neighbors and loved ones arrested with this power of Jesus Christ. God, thank you for the work you're doing in our midst and in our lives continue to do it. God, help us to have faith to believe. In Jesus' name.